Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Eric Ting. He is the artistic director of Cal Shakes, California Shakespeare Theater. Before that, eight years, associate artistic director, Long Wharf Theater, Obie winner for Off-Broadway Direction. A production with a very, very long title. The shorthand for it is We Are Proud to Present a Presentation. But it goes on. We are proud to present a presentation on the Herero of Namibia, formerly Southwest Africa from the German Sudwest Africa between the years 1865 and 1915. I always get those years wrong, but that's the title of the play. Written by uh, amazing young writer Jackie Sibley's Drury. What year was that? Three or four years ago. It was a Soho rep. This season at Cal Shakes, Eric Ting will be directing Othello late in the season, which we'll get to. You're the new artistic director at Cal Shakes, coming after John Moscone. So I want to ask a few questions about Cal Shakes, since when I interviewed Jonathan Moscone, it was after he'd left (laughs) and was already over at the Urba Buena Center for the Arts. Let's go back a little bit because you've had to do your own research into Cal Shakes. What's the history of the company? How did it start? Well, you know, it started back in, I guess, it was in 1973. There's some debate over 73 or 74, but 74 was its first season. And, you know, Cal Shakes started as a Berkeley Shakespeare Theater, and it was performing in John Hinkle Park here in Berkeley. About 25 years ago, they underwent a campaign to find a new home, a more permanent home, and they ended up on protected land. It's Ebmud land out in the Arinda Hills. And so we're celebrating this year the 25th anniversary of the Bruns, and it was a, a sort of remarkable transition for the organization. And one of the things that they had an opportunity to do was to create this amazing space. So anybody who's been to Cal Shakes knows what I'm talking about. It's like a celebration of the natural world, which for me is kind of perfect in the sense that as a Shakespeare theater, you know, Shakespeare is a celebration I always find of the human world. And the theater itself is mirrored after the Globe Theater. Up until John's tenure, it was all Shakespeare. And I think one of the things that John really moved the organization towards is a theater. He changed the name from the California Shakespeare Festival to the California Shakespeare Theater and introduced this idea of programming that extended beyond the works of William Shakespeare. That's something that we hope to continue. Cal Shakes has been considered one of the, I guess, three or four top theaters in the Bay Area, but what made it unique was Shakespeare. If it's expanding into different areas outside of the extraordinary theater, the Bruns, what sets Cal Shapes apart other than also that it's the summer theater. In terms of expanding beyond William Shakespeare as, as a programming initiative, you know, that's something that John started. He introduced writers like Oscar Wilde and George Bernard Shaw. He started to actually explore diversifying the voices represented on stage. And so they produced Spunk, they produced The Raisin in the Sun. He programmed the first three shows of our season this year, and it includes the debut of August Wilson on Cal Shake's stage. 
I think at the heart of all of the stories that have been told out there at the Bruns, there has been a real recognition that the legacy of William Shakespeare, which we're also celebrating this year, the 400th anniversary of, that the legacy of that man's work sort of had this impact on how we think of the theater today, that Shakespeare's plays were produced for all people. That was one of the great things about the Globe Theater was that on any one night you would find groundlings right next to nobility, right next to the aristocrat sitting up on stage. And as we think about what other writers we want to welcome to that stage, it's in constant conversation around sort of how do these writers capture what is essential about Shakespeare's work. You've said that you see art as a tool for social change. How does this fit in there? I guess I don't necessarily think of art as a tool for social change. I think the act of making art is an act of making social change. I think when we make art, we bring beauty into the world. And we don't just bring beauty, but we bring sort of human stories into the world. And making art, for anyone who has ever made art, participated in making art, especially when we talk about the act of making theater, because theater for me is a very human art form. You know, we are addressing what is happening in the world today. It's the beauty of theater, right? Theater, because it's an ephemeral art form, it lacks permanence. Part of what defines it is the sort of context of the moment that it's being created in. I, as an artist, embrace that, embrace the locality, not just of geography, but the locality of time that theater is. I find that the best theater, the most powerful theater, is entertaining, but it also comments upon our, our world. And because there's that commentary that happens and there's that dialogue and exchange that happens, we draw attention to the issues that we face and to get people talking and to get people really engaging with like hard questions. One thing Cal Shakes doesn't do is put on new plays. They've done a couple. As you mentioned, I come from Long Wharf Theater, and while I was at Long Wharf Theater, a lot of my work focused on living writers and new works, you know, world premieres and second productions. I said to folks, I was like, you know, I'm not the guy you normally think of to run a Shakespeare theater. The selection committee on the board said to me, that's fine because when we interviewed John for this job, John had also never directed a Shakespeare play. So it's not something that is unusual to the organization. I do think what I bring with it is a deep reverence for the works of William Shakespeare. And from my perspective, again, as I was saying before, I think partly it's about coming at these old plays as if they're new plays. So that when we listen to Shakespeare, one of the things that we're listening for in these productions is how do his words from so many years ago continue to speak to us today? And so we're looking at that and we're hearing them afresh in that way. Was that kind of your impetus behind setting Macbeth in the Vietnam War? It was, yes. We chose the Vietnam War because, as Shakespeare also understood, sometimes distance is helpful when we're telling stories that are about our contemporary moment. It wasn't uncommon for Shakespeare to have sort of like have all of that commentary in his plays, but he would set it in a different period of time. And when we were working on that production of Macbeth, what was happening was they were drawing down forces in Iraq. And there were a lot of soldiers returning home from war. And the conversation of that kind of reentry that these men and women were going through was a conversation that was happening across the country, and certainly in New Haven, Connecticut, where we were doing this adaptation. And we just found that it, it presented a really great opportunity to examine the play from that perspective of two soldiers returning home from war. That's really essentially the opening moments of the play. And we had this really amazing experience with this veterans group. What they essentially did was they taught us that, they taught me certainly in that moment, that 
Shakespeare in this tragedy that he was writing was wrestling with an observation of soldiers and this experience that these soldiers were going through when they got back. And not having medical science and psychology and psychiatry to cull from, you know, he assigned it to the supernatural. And so these three witches become in their own way an expression of PTSD. When I spoke with John Moscone, and we talked about Shakespeare set in other times and places, he uh-huh. said on some level he thinks that's more for the director to get to the sense of the play rather than the audience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Shakespeare and a lot of classical theater, but especially Shakespeare in our day and age, the director takes on a profoundly authorial role. I actually love Shakespeare in contemporary dress with very little spectacle, in part because I think that's actually how Shakespeare's plays were performed. So even though we think of Shakespeare's plays in Elizabethan costume in front of the Globe Theater, these plays were being performed in the contemporary dress of the time. And the clothing was there in part to communicate sort of cues of status, of class, of gender to the audience, and they were familiar clothing to them. And so from my perspective, really, the way that I always choose to engage with Shakespeare is from the place of the now and putting people, again, similarly in clothing that communicates the necessary information to support the story that is unfolding through the language, just allowing the language to be the spectacle. Like, I think it's an interesting thing that I talk about a lot, which is that today we always talk about going to see the theater, but in Shakespeare's time, it was not uncommon to hear people talk about going to listen to the theater, that it wasn't about the visual spectacle. They didn't have, like, it wasn't like they had lights back then, right? It was really about going to listen to the theater and that the spectacle was the spectacle of language, of words that were literally being made up and invented and entered into the lexicon. It's a kind of amazing thing. This is kind of counter to what's happening on Broadway now. It's all about production. Yeah. That gets at least in part to the question of ticket prices, right? We live in a culture that is, you know, about exchange. And when people are asked to pay so much money to see a play, there's an expectation that comes with that, that somehow those dollars should be reflected in some way in the production. I think of it this way, which is that it's about the artist, finally, in the end. The theater and the true sort of central contract, the true central relationship in the live theater is the audience and the actor. And on some level, what we're really doing is we're going to see the great actors speak these these words. The spectacle is there to support that, and the spectacle is there in part because I think also technology, the conversation of technology is working its way into our Broadway productions. I see that a lot in a lot of the transfers from London especially. But then you have a play like Hamilton, which has very little spectacle. You know, there are turntables, certainly, but you could imagine that entire piece happening with very little set and very little costume, that part of what Hamilton is trying to do in the choices that Lin-Manuel Miranda has made is he's trying to force an audience to see the world differently, to see our own history differently. I love that. I think there are interesting challenges and conversations around that and complicated conversations around that. But I think at its heart, the intention of it, which is to say that theater is fundamentally a transformative art form. And it doesn't just transform the actor, but it transforms the way the audience sees the actor, and it transforms the way we see the story. And it, it creates a space for us to imagine a world where you know Alexander Hamilton is played by Lin-Manuel Miranda. I just saw a production at ACT of a musical called The Last Five Years. Wonderful show. Yes. 
about two years ago, ACT did a concert version where the two actors just faced the audience and you just had to listen to the songs. Yeah. This version was fully produced with dancing and all of that, uh-huh. and it was gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. But you know something? I got more out of the first. I mean, I'm not surprised by that. You know, some of my best friends are scenic designers, so don't get me wrong. I think that theater has always, in a way, been a kind of bastard art form. It's been described that way historically, right? It's been a combination of all of the arts. There's the literary component of it. There is the sort of musical and performative component of it, the dance component of it, the visual art component of it. I think that's a great thing to celebrate. And I think there are some amazing designers out there who are able, in their way through their work, to actually sort of reveal truths of the play that perhaps would not be there without it. I say time and time again, you know, theater doesn't require any of that. You know, I think that the really great test of a work is how it lands with nothing, right? But the words and the performance. And that's a testament, I think, to the last five years and Jason's work in particular. We did a production of that at Long Wharf. So, I, you know, I know the play, I know the musical a little. And to the extent that as an audience member, we are constantly drawn to human stories. I think that it's like there are these great oral history traditions. There are great oral history programs out there in the world. The radio programs in particular, for instance, right, which sort of pare down all of our stories into these things that, that we utter. And I think that when you recognize that, really what we value is the story, that we come back time and time again to the journey of these characters that we invest a little bit of ourselves in for a little bit of time. When that story really speaks to us, we don't need the spectacle because the spectacle is in our minds. When you arrived and you began looking at the Bruns space, so you've got this outdoor space yeah. that has great acoustics, granted, yeah, but it's a strange space in that you're sort of looking toward greenery on the other side of the stage. It can be very, very cold and very windy. What are the particular challenges that you have <laughs> coming in to this particular setup? You know, we're doing Much Ado, and and Much Ado was my first tech experience, like experience sort of with a production teching in that space. I think when I first arrived up there at the Bruns and I saw a production up there, I saw last summer both Life is a Dream and King Lear. In particular, King Lear was free. It was like freezing. It was like everyone told me to bring my winter coat and, bring, you know, grab a couple blankets. And it was a very bracing experience for me, let's just say. If there's one thing that I took from that was a profound respect for our audiences. They are willing in their way to expose themselves to these natural elements, to expose themselves to the natural world in service of exposing themselves to the human world. It's kind of amazing, you know. It tells me a lot about who who Kalshake's audiences are, at least in part, that they're an audience that can get so swept up in the story unfolding on stage that they forget about the discomfort, the relative discomfort of what it means to be out there at the Bruns sometimes. You know, this idea of a willingness to be exposed, a willingness to be uncomfortable, a willingness to confront the natural world is a really special thing. Well, the other side of that is that people in the Bay Area, after enduring the Oakland Coliseum and Candlestick Park, are more used to that sort of thing than perhaps somebody from New York. (laughs) It's funny because when we talk about making theater, I mean, so much of theater 
has recently, right, been these kind of enclosed spaces. You know, we create these sort of tabula rasas and right. these black boxes, these big giant black boxes and sort of like, and a lot of the work that we try and do is to make us forget about the space that we're in. But, as, you know, I said before, theater is a, is a deeply local experience, you know, and I think what's really special about the Brunzes is it doesn't let you forget that. Eric Ting, let's get now to this upcoming season. You said John Moscone programmed the first three shows. When you walked in, how did you feel about having them already set in stone? Oh, great. You? I, you know, John was very gracious when I was here interviewing for the job. He actually took me aside and well before anyone knew about the titles that they were announcing. He asked me about them. He asked me what my opinion was. He presented to me three titles, Much Ado About Nothing, Fences, and You Never Can Tell, and three directors, three amazing directors, Jackson Gay, Ray Elmerikajas, and Lisa Peterson, and directors that I'm huge fans of. So, you know, he, he, he sent me these titles, and he told me these directors, and I was like, great, sold. I think what was really great about the plays that John chose was that they gave me a lot of space to explore some of the things that are very important to me how to come at these old plays and to shake the dust off of them and to make them relevant and to make them intentionally relevant. There are great experiences where you go to see plays of Shakespeare's or of Shaw's and they're produced in a way that is sort of historical. And I think as an audience member, you can receive that and I appreciate that. And at times there are always these moments when I realize or I recognize something about us now in those plays. And, and I'm drawn to that, definitely. But I think as an artist, I'm in particular drawn to this question time and time again of how do we be a classical theater for the 21st century? How do we really engage with issues that we as a culture and as a community are confronting right now? And I think that's something that I love about what Jackson has done with Much Ado About Nothing. It's something that I encourage as a producer, but it's Jackson's vision through and through. And she's worked with another writer and collaborator of hers, Kenneth Lynn who is a writer on House of Cards. Um, and they work together to kind of create a framing device for our production of Much Ado. So that Much Ado now is a kind of play within a play. Love it. Because in part what it's doing is it's surfacing themes of Much Ado that I don't think are normally surfaced in quite so clear a way. It's a story about the roles that we're cast in. You know, whether or not we want those roles, whether or not we want to be that person. There's a great moment when Beatrice is like, oh, to be a man. Oh, that I were a man, right? And, you know, there's that longing sometimes that we have in us, this longing that we were somehow something other than what we are. And yet here we are who we are. Society builds these sort of assumptions around that, around those roles. And she's really, I think, poking at that. In the credits, it says adapted by... An additional text. The additional text is the framing? Yes. The additional text is the framing device. I mean, it's a great framing device. I don't know that I'm giving anything away necessarily, but the conceit is that the weddings of Much Ado have taken place. And this is in the aftermath of the wedding party and that there's still everyone upstairs in the house partying. Downstairs, all the caterers are clearing out the aftermath of that festivity. And the caterers begin to recount the story of Much Ado and how those weddings happened in the first place. And then it's a flashback. Yeah, basically. Specifically relating to this production, what do you see that would relate to our times in particular? There's so much joy in this production and there's so much joy in Much Ado. It's one of Shakespeare's great, great romantic comedies. But if there is a choice that has been made that I think will be controversial to audiences, it's that Jackson has cast 
in the role of Benedict, a beloved Cal Shakes and Bay Area actor, Stacy Ross, and in the role of Beatrice, another beloved Cal Shakes and Bay Area actor, Jim Carpenter. And this has to do a little bit again with the, the framing device. The framing device allows this a little bit. It allows for actors to take on roles that they would not necessarily be cast in. Well, that happened last year. John did that as well. Twelfth Night, yes. Twelfth Night was a production where it was predominantly women acting in the play, I think, with one male actor in it. We talk about Shakespeare, I think, a lot in terms of this this idea of non-traditional casting. I mentioned it in my program note, but, you know, there's a long history of artists engaging with inequities in the world by putting actors in roles that draw attention to those inequities, if that makes sense. I think a good example was, you know, in the 1950s when when we were in the midst and the cusp of the civil rights movement, you saw a lot of theaters begin to, to introduce black actors in roles that had not heretofore been thought of to be played by black actors. And that forced the conversation around issues that were happening in our world today. I think what's really great about this choice, and I will say just from the very beginning, you know, Jackson has a great story about how we ended up with Jim Carpenter as Beatrice. In the beginning, I don't think this was ever Jackson's intention, but Jackson sort of invited all of these actors to audition with a selection of monologues from the play. And Jim was telling me this the other day. Jim Jim was like, you know, he was looking at these four monologues, like, well, what do I go into audition with? And he looked at Beatrice's monologue, and he's like, I love this role. When am I ever going to get a chance to play this? This is going to be like my only opportunity. So I'm going to go in and audition with Beatrice's monologue. And he did it. And I think what happened in that moment was that he just he just blew Jackson away. Like he gave such a, a connected and anchored and a deep and nuanced reading of that speech. What Jackson has said is that in watching that, she suddenly heard the words in a way that she had never heard them before. And it was in a way imagining like what an audience in Shakespeare's time might have been like going into that space and hearing those words for the very first time. And I think what she was excited about was that in the sense of the play is a play that deals with gender roles, that in subverting that, she's asking the question of like, really, what do those gender roles mean anymore? And in a time when we as a, as a community and as a, as a country, really, frankly, are wrestling with gender fluidity and how do we create an inclusive and welcoming space for all people, it seems like an incredibly timely choice. The beauty of Shakespeare, right, is that everything you need to know about the story is in the words. Right. It really is. It's all in the words. And so the fact that in Elizabethan England, all the characters were played by men, right, there was already a, an element of dissonance for an audience that you were watching Juliet played by a young man or you were watching Beatrice played by a young man, right? This was happening in Shakespeare's time. What Jackson's production is doing is it's, it's drawing attention to what those assumptions mean. Moving on to the next play, Fences by August Wilson. There was recently a production at Marin Theatre Company. Yeah. And in fact, Margot Hall is playing the same role in this. Absolutely. Were you in any way intimidated by the fact that it had just been performed? I know John was committed to bringing August Wilson to our stage. And when you look at the plays of August Wilson's Fences is a particularly appropriate play for the Bruns. It's outdoors. Exactly, sure. right? In general, I would never pass up an opportunity to work with Margot Hall. When that came up, you know, there were a couple things that we were looking at. One thing is that the Bay Area has a, an immense 
richness of theaters, but the Bay Area geographically is quite far apart from each other. We find that we have not the same audiences. The audiences that go up to Marin are not necessarily the same audiences that come out to Cal Shakes, just because of the geography of it. So in the same way that one never shies away from doing Shakespeare multiple times, in fact, this year there are three productions of Othello, which I'm happy to chat more about. But, you know, I think we should feel the same way about a play like Fences. It's one of the great August Wilson dramas. I think what Rael is doing with the production is compelling in an essential way. She's doing the play and she's looking at the play. You know, the play is the play is the play. At the heart of that play is this man, Troy Maxson, who is a sort of a former baseball, professional baseball player, now sanitation worker. Um, but there is a character in the play, Rose Maxson, who for much of the play, people only talk about. And I think Rael, as a director, was interested in coming at that play and somehow bringing forth or elevating the character of Rose Maxson in the story, of drawing our attention to it. And I think one of the exciting things about what Cal Shakes has done, and one of the things that drew me here, is that Cal Shakes has this long history, um, and certainly a, a great recent history of really innovative community engagement initiatives. And one of those is this artist investigator program. It inspired Rael to work with our engagement department to organize a story circle of women from Oakland whose experiences resonate with those experiences of Rose Maxson which is essentially a woman who raises three children, two of whom are not her own. And that story circle will be happening in Oakland. Rael will participate in it, and Margot will participate in it. And the idea is to just hear about these experiences, hopefully to record some of those experiences, to introduce some of those experiences into the sound design of the show, but also then to take those stories and to reflect them up at the Bruns in some way, shape, or form, so that as audiences are arriving to see this play about Troy Maxson, they're passing through all of these experiences that will try to center some of that experience around the character of Rose. Who's playing Troy? Aldo Billingsley. That's actually a really fascinating casting choice. When I was first applying for this job, one of the things that I'm always interested in as a director is creating bridges between work. Like how do we connect plays that we're doing that may seem like they don't have a direct connection to each other? How do we connect them and allow them to resonate with each other? And one of the pairings that I pitched early on was Fences and Othello for a lot of different reasons, right? But at the time, I had not realized that John was planning on programming Fences. It was just one of my initial thoughts. And there's a number of different pairings so like that. So he's playing Othello, too? Yeah. It's like great, right? That's the thing about summer theater and about the Bay Area as well is I think because we have such an amazing company of local artists, local actors, the Bay Area gets to regularly see these actors portray all of these different roles. But, you know, in a Shakespeare theater, it's not uncommon to see theater in rep. And because you're seeing theater in rep, you also get the opportunity to see actors play these different roles within the same space. And it's not something that Cal Shakes does. We do, we do not perform in rep. But we have these artists who are beloved by our audiences who come back time and time again. And Aldo is one of those actors that I just I have a great passion for. When we were able to secure him for Troy Maxson and Fences, we started a conversation about whether or not he could bring himself to be Othello. And was that part of the decision-making in bringing Othello? No. Actually, we had not been able to get Aldo to commit to the show when we committed to Othello. So a little bit of inner workings of how Cal Shakes is running. 
Um, as I mentioned before, I'm always very interested in the way the theater speaks of the moment. And so when we were looking at Othello, Othello obviously is the long history in this country of the play that gets done when artists in the United States are interested in engaging with questions of race in America. It's the most overt example of that in Shakespeare's work. I think partly I was drawn to Othello for that reason, this idea that now at the end of Obama's term as president, at the beginning of his presidency, we thought briefly that we were in a post-racial America. And obviously what's come about since then is almost a kind of a more polarized America than we were before. And what do we do about that? And how do we not come to terms with it or solve it? I'm not offering that. I don't think there's any way to do that. That's not something that happens quickly. It's not something that happens through theater alone, certainly. But how do we confront it? And so we were talking about Othello as a way to do that, as a, as a point of departure for the conversation. The interesting thing that happened, though, was that while we were talking about it, before we had really committed to Othello, politics and the political rhetoric sort of and in particular, I think, the political rhetoric coming from the GOP primary race and Trump and this idea of sort of really feeding upon a kind of long tradition in this country of xenophobia and in particular Islamophobia at the time, for me, really cemented the choice of Othello. We often think of Othello as a black man, but we less often recognize Othello as the more. That was something that I said, oh, what if we were to do that? What if we were really to explore this play through also that lens? Is it modern dress? Yes. For me, this is my way of saying this is a play that we are telling. This is a story that we are telling, but it is finally, in the end, a parable for our times. I'm less interested as a director in creating all of these layers of alienation and distance between the audience and the actors. I think this is a company of players. This is a company of actors that have come together to tell the story, and they're going to tell the story as if they are us. The other play in the season is You Never Can Tell Shaw. I'm not that familiar with that play. It's one of his lesser-known comedies, definitely. John had been working through the canon. John was a fan of George Bernard Shaw, and I get why, totally get why. And I think in choosing Lisa Peterson, he knew what he was doing. And Lisa Peterson is this director that has been working her way through the Shaw canon as well. And I think one of the things that Lisa tries to do is she talks about it as if like, I want to take Shaw out of the drawing room. Like, I just want theater to feel now. I, I want theater to feel urgent. I want theater to feel necessary. I want it to be entertaining and joy-filled and light-filled, but I want it also to just acknowledge that the world that we are in is the world that we're in. What's the setup of the play? It's a setup of mistaken identities. There's a woman and her two children who are returning home after some time living in another country. At one point, the children invite a man home for dinner that, that they do not realize is actually their father. Is there a political context to it? There always can be. You know, I think when you look at Shaw's work, I mean, Shaw was a political writer. Certainly in his better-known works, there's constant conversations around class, around faith, around political issues of his time. And that's also true of a lot of the writers that were writing in that moment. But you never can tell, I think, perhaps, it's really more a comedy than a political drama. Do you know, I think that to surface what is political about that play requires a little extra effort. I don't know where Lisa's going to take it just yet. I, I mean, I think there's one thing that Lisa is doing, which is it is a diverse company in the way that really our entire company this year is diversely cast. The big choice that you never can tell is making is that Lisa is actually transplanting the production to the Bay Area. 
So the same time period, but here in the Bay. We've just been looking at a model of the set, and the set's like, it looks, it looks like a, a sort of Santa Cruz boardwalk. One thing I like about that is I've noticed a tendency lately for a lot of directors to want to impose accents on people. What I've found lately is that they've been very successful in getting them to stay on accent, but then they're so focused on accent that there seems to be a lull in the acting. And sure. The idea of moving it to where people can speak American English. Sure. I kind of like that at this point. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, it does. It, it absolutely makes sense. You know, I don't want to critique, you know, the actor's process. I think that accents are challenging in any world. Some people are better at it than others. It's just more natural for them. But yes, I think what you're basically describing are is another layer of distancing, right? So like another layer of artifice. So theater is at its heart artifice. A lot of the theater that we make is about creating a space where the audience for a little bit of time suspends their disbelief and imagines that this place is this place or another place, right? But it's artificial. It's symbolic, right? The work, the set that you put up, the flats that you put up, the locations, they're symbolic locations. They're meant to stand in for something. But what happens with choices like what Lisa is making, what you're describing, right, which is, and, and even frankly what I'm doing with Othello, to a lesser degree what's happening with Much Ado, and even what's happening with fences, you know, that in trying to invite our contemporary world into these old plays, what we're trying to do is we're trying to remove those things that distance us from it. Those We're trying to remove those things that separate us from the story so that we can be represented in the story as fully as possible. And that's certainly one of the choices that Lisa is making with that production. Eric Ting, you're directing Othello this is a summer project. What other direction work do you have coming up for yourself? You know, there's a couple projects that I'm in talks about. The nice thing about Cal Shakes from an artistic perspective is while I get to produce this season and I'll be directing one show every year, it's a summer theater. And so we have this off season. And during the off season, I'm invited to take on freelancing jobs. There is one project, though, that is very near and dear to me that I have been developing for a couple of years now, and that at some point we hope to bring to audiences here at Cal Shakes. And it's an adaptation of an Octavia E. Butler science fiction novel, believe it or not, called Parable of the Sower. And it is a sung-through opera version. The music is written by Toshi Regan and Bernice Regan, and it is influenced by basically the last 200 years of African-American musical traditions. Much Ado About Nothing, adapted by Kenneth Lynn and Jackson Gay, with additional material by Kenneth Lynn, directed by Jackson Gay, plays at Cal Shakes through June 19th. For more information, you can go to their website, calshakes.org. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.